Now with that said, we are officially in the summer season, and uh, typically I try to break from our normal teaching or to do, I do something different about, uh, to sort of emphasize the fact that we're in the summer. And we are going to move into a series in the back end of Ephesians chapter 6. I'll give you some more detail on this here in a moment. But we're going to do a series talk, talking about standing firm, what it means to sort of understand the critical things God asks us to be and the critical things that he asks us to do in our world, some of the tools that he's provided us to be able to stand firm at times in a world that can be very difficult to minister in the name of Jesus for. And so I want to open by sharing with you a story. This goes into my family. On occasion, these things overlap, and they're pretty humorous and interesting, I think. But nonetheless, several several years ago, uh, I still have a lot of family that live up in the Northeast, in Jersey and in New York. And one of my uncles uh, from up north moved, uh, not moved, excuse me, visited us from Florida. This is my dad's brother, whose name is Patsy, whom we refer to as Uncle Patsy. And that's the English version of his name. His real name is Pasquale, but that got dropped a long time ago after my grandparents or my grandfather came here from Italy. His name, which is pretty common in America, was Englishized. And so we began to call him Uncle Patsy. And he, like my father, grew up pretty much like in the street of Brooklyn. They grew up in a very different Brooklyn than, than the one I did or even the one that exists today. And although they seldom speak of those years, on occasion, they will open up and give us some insight into what that looked like. And when they do, it's always worth listening. It's like tapping into a page in history that no longer exists. And I want to share with you a true story that my uncle shared with me about a guy in his neighborhood. One time, this is just we were sitting at a table eating, and he just proceeded to share this story from his youth. And he told us about this guy who lived in his neighborhood who was so tough and feared that they gave this guy an, a nickname to describe him. They called this guy Heart Attack. Okay, that was his nickname, Heart Attack. Now, for some untold reason, my uncle began to tell us that Heart Attack had a problem with him. And it was a, a neighborhood issue. And eventually, this came to the place where, in those days, he was challenged, my uncle was challenged, to resolve the conflict by fighting. I certainly don't recommend this, but that was the predominant conflict resolution tool in the neighborhood at that time. And my uncle said the conflict was based on some gossip and misunderstanding that they never had a chance to sort out. But nonetheless, Tempers were pretty hot on the front end of this, and eventually there was a bit of a conflict between these two men. Now what's interesting about this, especially because I don't know Heart Attack and I've never met him, uh, his, his request was a pretty bold one in my opinion, because my Uncle Patsy is a really big guy. He's like pushing 6'4 and built like a tank. I mean, he is a very big man. And so eventually, in this uh, Wild West-like way, they, they met. And I thought it was interesting that my uncle spoke of this guy in a way that had a bit of reverence since he's so big. So one day in the neighborhood, they get together, they come face to face, they have a group of friends with each other, sort of like a West Side Story deal without the dancing and jumping around in tights, and they are, they are posed for, uh, poised for conflict. And from the outset of this meeting, my uncle told me it was pretty heated, and this guy, heart attack, kept confronting him about all the things that were said. And so my uncle refused to back down from these accusations. He told them that none of this stuff was true, and he kept arguing with him about this. And over the course of a few minutes, what began to happen is his tenacious desire to sort of stand against something he knew that wasn't right eventually caused this notorious heart attack guy to calm down, so much so that the temperature's cooled enough for them to be able to sort this out by talking and not brawling, which is pretty rare. Now, that day, I learned a couple of things. It's, it's you know, an interesting story for me, especially because it chronicles some of the history of my family. But I learned two very important things from my Uncle Patsy. The first was a piece of wisdom that has guided my life ever since. The first one is this. No one, not you, not me, not anybody we know, should ever mess with a person that is so tough that their neighborhood nicknames them heart attack, okay? So, in fact, I think we can apply this a step further. As a rule of thumb, you should never mess with anybody in your circle of influence 
that is so tough that they earn a nickname after a life-threatening illness, okay? So if you know somebody like on the campus in Georgia or in your workplace or school, if they call that person malaria or the flu or bronchitis, it's probably best to just stay away from the person altogether. People get those names for a reason, okay? Secondly, when he told me this story, I'm sort of a data bank for preaching. I knew right away that this would be an illustration one day that I'd have an opportunity to sort of share. So I put it in my little notebook of stories that might one day be useful in an environment like this. And I think this is useful for an important reason. Today, it sort of hits on this theme that I want to teach over these next weeks. And even though in that situation, my uncle was facing a, a very legitimate challenge in his youth in those days, a life-threatening challenge, frankly, uh, something in that moment compelled him to stand for something he thought was right. In this case, it was clarifying a, 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 an accusation that wasn't correct. And in that case, and especially in those days, that was usually done for personal respect. You were earning the credibility of the people in your neighborhood. Although we as Christians will probably never face a situation like that, it's rare, it's impossible that most of us will face this, the circumstances that are, were involved there, other challenges, difficulties in life, some stuff that can be equally or more serious are things we face on a regular basis. We at times are going to be faced with this decision to stand firm for the things that we hold near and dear in our lives, whatever they are, friends, family, regarding what we're talking about from Ephesians, the particular truth of Jesus. You know, since the dawn of Christianity, there have always been objections and concerns and problems, and even belief, obviously, but there have always been folks who have had problems with the tenets of the Christian faith. And so there's a reason why Paul, who is the greatest missionary in the New Testament, writes about these things. He is constantly challenging us to think about the gospel in us and the mission of Jesus and some of the difficulties that we might face as we try to apply the truth of Jesus in our lives and live it out in the world that God has put us in. There are going to be times where we have to stand for the things that we believe in and equally as important, live for the things we claim we stand for. And so today we begin looking at a section of teaching in Ephesians which commands us to stand firm in the ways of Jesus. And in this section, which we just read, verses 10 through 12, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul instructs us to take the truth of Jesus as gospel. All the beautiful realities we sing about in this room on a weekly basis, the things we practice in our community groups, the, thing, the ways we live these truths out in our world, whether you are having private devotional time with Jesus and the word and prayer, all of these gospel truths that we interact with every single day, we are called in this passage to, to apply them in our lives. We are told to stand firm in these truths against the various trials we face in life. And these truths are actually given a, a bit of a nickname, you might say. Paul calls them the armor of God. They are the essential spiritual tools we are to be living in, dwelling on, applying to our lives and heart every single day so that we can be faithful to the mission of God wherever he leads us, and certainly so that we can have a robust walk with Jesus wherever he leads us. And so today, we're going to look at a lot of things over these next weeks, but today I just want to introduce this idea of standing firm in this summer series by looking at one main truth. I'd like for us to identify why we actually need something like Paul talks about here. Why is it that we need something called the armor of God? Why do we need to have these disciplines on our mind and in our hearts so that we can be faithful to Jesus? Why, in essence, do we need a teaching like this? That's all that I want to talk about today. And we'll jump right in and look at the only truth we're going to look at this morning, which all revolves around recognizing in a world that is more than just physical, as spiritual realities we deal with in this world, forces of darkness, according to Paul, it's important that we know that God's power and presence is available for us in any circumstance we deal with in life. The first and only truth I want to share with you is this. Learning to stand firm in the Lord is important, 
because life is filled with many powerful forces outside of our control. This is the story of life, and I'll reread to you what we read in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What Paul's highlighting here is that many of the things in our lives, some of you are very disciplined, you are very prepared, you are thoughtful people, but the most thoughtful, disciplined people in life are going to face circumstances that are out of their control. We can see this in the most mundane, and according to this passage, in some very significant ways. Let me just give you an example of forces outside of our control. You might be very disciplined with your money. We encourage that here, that we practice a lifestyle of, of simplicity and generosity. That's one of the sort of tenets of we, that we have as a church. You can be disciplined with your money. You can be smart about making you know, good investments so that you can retire well and be generous for the rest of your days. And then some folks speculating in the stock market can make some decisions that actually wipe out your entire retirement. That's a force out of your control. You can do the right things and sometimes end up in very difficult circumstances. You might take care of your body, right? You might really value the temple that God has given you. But some of the healthiest people on earth, sometimes they develop sicknesses, very serious illnesses, and they don't know why. I'm not at all discouraging responsibility here. I'm just saying we do ourselves a disservice if we think that we are fully in control of everything going on in our lives. Because the world will repeatedly remind us that this is not true. This is especially true not just in the physical side of life, but in the spiritual side of life. And so here the Bible, the Apostle Paul is telling us, here the scripture is very clear that we need the armor of God because life is often a physical and spiritual battle. These two things coincide with each other. And for the past several hundred years, statements like this, which speak about the spiritual side of life, especially ones dealing with this idea of a devil, which we'll get to here in a moment, they were considered to be a bit hokey and maybe even a simpleton's way of thinking. This is going to be for those who are really aggressively opposed to any type of faith or religion. And there's a reason for this. This didn't just erupt out of nowhere, this, this idea, this viewpoint of what we're talking about today. This was in large part due to the way the Enlightenment shaped the way we understand life in the West. Now, I'll spare you a very detailed history lesson here. But the Enlightenment taught us, the European Enlightenment taught us, that the greatest faculty humanity had in this world to make our way was our own mind. It was self. And while there is some truth in that, please don't hear me discouraging the robust use of the mind or our faculties and capabilities. Those are very important things that we value, cherish, and use. While there is some truth in this, to believe that in its fullness neglects the incredibly important spiritual side of our lives, which a great many people long to be fulfilled in throughout their days on this earth. Spirituality is, is something that a great many people actually seek. They might seek it in very different things, not necessarily always Jesus, but they look for it. So it wasn't that there was no room for the spiritual side of life in the Enlightenment. It's just that as the emphasis on reason grew, which is a good thing, and became a god in its own way, it gradually dethroned spirituality. This is the well we drink from in the West. It's an important one to understand because it's shaped a lot of the opposition we have in our world about faith. Now this said, culture, as many of you know, is always a swinging pendulum. If you look at the history of the world, a lot of times it's just absolute overcorrections, one direction towards the other. And today we're seeing a shift again in culture. Not, not meaning today, but over this past season, we've seen a shift in culture that is moving towards what I would call like a both-and philosophy when it comes to the physical and the spiritual side of life. As a society, we deeply value reason and logic. You can't get away from that in the West. The tangible, we want that. 
But we also see people yearning for and regularly believing, although again I want to reemphasize, not always in Christ, that life has a serious spiritual dimension. They, they want the physical to matter, but they also want to know that something goes beyond just the physical. And this is where the scripture, often ridiculed for presenting too simplistic an understanding of life's challenges, proves otherwise here. What I want to argue for is that these concepts are not simple. Some of them are actually very complex. The more you begin to understand them, the more you can be begin to parse the realities of the world we live in. And so there are many people who think and consequently reject Christianity because they feel at times, I don't think this is a biblical truth. You might express faith this way at times. I don't think the Bible supports this, but nonetheless, this can happen. There are many people who think and consequently reject Christianity because they feel it naively over-spiritualizes the world's greatest problems. There is an absolute spiritual problem here, but there's also a physical reality to this. They think the Bible says that any time a person messes up or when we see evil in the world, that there's a scapegoat called the devil. The devil made somebody to do it. Now, while there are some circles of Christianity that might believe that, the Bible does not actually teach this. It is truly overly simplistic. There's a cause effect here, but that actual blame cannot be applied in every single circumstance to the devil. So let's talk about the devil a little bit, since again, it's about 155 degrees out. It'll be an apt sort of illustration here this morning. Sometimes if we take a teaching like this and we hyper-spiritualize it, what happens is we can live in a state of spiritual paranoia. Uh, sometimes blaming the devil for things a person is choosing to do in their own will. Unlike the tendency that culture has to, to swing this pendulum in extremes, and this is true even in faith, sometimes we can overreact or overemphasize certain teachings at the expense of other ones. We're trying to find a congruent balance in the teachings of the Bible. What winds up happening is, is when we swing the pendulum, in the case of our culture today, this radical uh, swinging between physical and spiritual, this is what we've seen over the past millennia, what we learn is that we are going to sort of have an imbalanced understanding of both life and faith. While the Bible consistently, because it hasn't changed, the Bible has always taught that people were created as physical, spiritual, and emotional beings. In other words, in a world that's always reacting and overreacting, the Bible's sort of like cutting the mustard straight through every single time. It presents this case from Genesis to Revelation. And in verse 12, Paul tells us that we do wrestle with the issues of the flesh and blood and life. He says we don't only wrestle with those things, but we do wrestle with those things. All throughout the Bible, it points out that people deal with all sorts of physical, spiritual, and emotional challenges. Matters like, for example, depression. Uh, we carry anger in our hearts at times. We might be people hurting people, or we might have been greatly hurt by other people. Our bodies can suffer physical illness, sometimes tragic physical illness that removes us from this earth in ways that are just too early. We can have financial troubles. We can have emotional troubles. We can have a re relational troubles. All of these things are the reality of a broken and fallen world. We don't want to act like these things don't exist. However, the scripture also recognizes that these things don't exist in a vacuum. There are also forces, spiritual forces, that have an effect on our lives in these areas too. And the one in particular Paul talks about here is the scheme or the schemes of the devil which seek to rob us of the fullness of Christ that we've been promised throughout the entire Bible. There's his schemes, and then there's sort of the, the darkened ways of the world, the darkened authorities, the darkened principles of the world that seek to, to hurt others and not necessarily free them. And so what Paul is trying to show us is that there really is such a thing as a devil, and that we should never underestimate his work in the world. There is a reason we need to be thinking about standing firm, because there can be at times a host of things that want to snuff out the life of Christ. And this is one of the reasons we are commanded to put on the full armor of God. 
because it protects us from some things in life that our rational thinking cannot protect us from. And this statement needs some explaining because a lot of modern people have a hard time swallowing a pill like this. For some, this is because a teaching like this kicks against their logical backbone. They're, they're so rooted in reason, which I am actually a, a big fan of. My, my mind is wired this way. I am more cognitive probably than anything else in my being. I can tell you sometimes even stuff like this, I read it and I'm like, oh, come on. right? I have to really wrap my head around this. But because I have a greater trust in God, I wrap my head around this or at least attempt to. There are some people who hear these things and they think they might just be a bit hokey, these spiritual realities. Or they might grossly misunderstand who the devil is. Sometimes it's that the reality is a, it's a perception problem. Maybe we've seen or heard things about some of the deeper spiritual realities in the Bible that actually are, are not accurate to what the Bible teaches. For example, when it comes to the idea of the devil or this type of darkness, a lot of our religious notions are influenced by pop culture influences and misinformed theological notions. Even in a room like this, it can feel a bit awkward talking about a subject like this. Like There are some subjects you're like, this stuff is great and awesome, but today we're talking about the devil, and it's not necessarily the one you might invite a friend to here. But in Ephesians 6, this is addressed. So it means we have to address it when we come across these truths. Even in a room like this, those of us who practice Christianity, a subject like this can feel a bit awkward because our world is wired towards reason. And I think this is the case because of this often hokey perception people have of these ideas, the devil and his schemes in our modern world. Take, for example, there's probably no better example of what I'm about to talk about than this building we meet in. Every month, just about, there are films, and they are very popular, you know, they're, they're called horror films, that try to communicate these ideas to the world. Ideas about the devil or the darkness of the world. Think about some very famous ones. The Exorcist, or any modern-day equivalent, which portrays the devil or other forms of darkness as some entity making people's heads spin around on their necks or tormenting them in their homes. That's the premise of almost every horror movie that comes out. I'm really not a fan of horror movies. I would not encourage you to see them. I think they're very dark and problematic. We can have the discussion another day if you'd like. But nonetheless, people at times will derive their ideas about these spiritualities from films or books, literature like that. The overwhelming popularity of movies like this sort of supports the case that I made a few moments ago. They reveal that people are really curious about the spiritual world. However, films like that are not a reliable source of truth for us to learn these truths from. We have to sort of separate them in the fact and fiction realm. Others unknowingly derive their understanding of the devil from really what could be considered Renaissance period. So Dante's Inferno, literature and drawings, artwork, we sort of have, like when I said devil, most of you, don't be honest, most of you probably had an image of what in your head? What's the most common understanding of the devil we have in our culture? Pitchfork. I, I heard pitchfork, I see horns, and he's usually what color, blue? Red, okay. You think this just we just stumbled on this? Like a, I have been taught on the devil maybe twice in nine years here. We didn't just stumble upon this together. There are influences that precede us that give us these, these notions. So there's something that is influenced, right? Sometimes pop culture music portrays the devil as the king of a kingdom that people want to go to. There's, there's tons of information out there about how people see this, this topic we're talking about today. And all I want to say is that it's a wrong understanding at times when we, when we approach this in, in ways that are actually not accurate to Scripture. Here's another common one that I, heard, I hear pretty regularly. You know, heaven is a, is a blissful place where, where good people go to. You know, it's like harps and white linens. Like, think of your favorite scent. That's what heaven smells like. That's what people say. While rebels, you know, they go to a place filled with 
with flames, and they have this eternally wild and crazy party, which is most likely held in Georgia, because apparently the devil does go down to Georgia on occasion, right? That's a reputable source that's told us. There's music for that, right? You Augusta students, that was free, totally on me, that one about Georgia, right? All these notions in our world about, about this idea. Some wrongly see, I remember hearing this in seminary, some wrongly see Satan as God's evil equal. They see God here and Satan here. And what they think is, he is all-knowing and all-powerful, that he has the same kind of power God does. It's just like used for evil. And that's, that's more actually Eastern philosophies of religion than it is Christianity, that there are equal and opposing forces in the world. Nothing opposes God. Nothing is, is, is equal to God. He is great and glorious and powerful and mighty. And he chooses to use all that greatness and goodness to put his son on the cross for us. We see even in that, in everything we're talking about here, whether it's a, a physical, and a, an emotional, a film, or a book, our misunderstanding of these ideas can be problematic. So if you walk around thinking that the enemy is God's equal, you are likely going to have a greater respect for the enemy than you will the God who is over all of these things. We believe he has the same kind of power God does. It's, a dangerous, uh, it's, it's dangerous to believe this stuff. So as dangerous as he and his effects on, of the, on the world are, this is patently un, untrue. In fact, it's more likely you will encounter the schemes of the devil, which is listed in this passage, the effects of the work in his world, than you will himself directly, because this is an incredibly big world. And he cannot be everywhere like Jesus can. That's not a power he has, because he's not as powerful as our God. And so now all these notions... They make for good entertainment, good movies, good films, good books, but none are biblically true, and all short sell the devil's real danger to us. That's what happens here. Our, our sort of colloquial understanding of the devil is a great example of what I'm about to say. It's a, one of the great examples of the way that he works. In the Bible, the word Satan, or Satan in the Hebrew, is actually, it's a Hebrew noun. That means the accuser or the adversary. It's describing something, the accuser or the adversary. That's where we get the idea of the Satan from, the Satan. Those definitions carry the idea of deception in them. That's the best understanding we can have of the devil, is that he has one purpose in life, through his direct work and indirect work, and it's to see that we never experience the goodness of Jesus by trying to deceive us with his never-ending schemes. He seeks to accomplish this by getting us to believe, for example, certain things. Things that are probably far more likely than your head spinning around in a, in a bedroom. These things are probably far more likely. The deception tools are things like getting you to believe you're, you're not loved, or you are an undervalued person in this world. You don't measure up. Or you are alone. Sure, you're, you, know, you might be an alright person, but nobody really cares about you. He wants to get us to believe things like, well, Jesus died to free you from the guilt and shame of your sin, truth of the cross. The scheme of Satan is to regularly remind you of your failures and your sin. We just sang about this a couple of minutes ago. One, the work of God frees us. The other seeks to enslave us to this continual problem, this, this bondage of the will. We are constantly trying to be broken down. Him. Contrary to popular belief, his weapon of choice is not any of these things we see in these movies. He prefers guilt and shame. He prefers to get us to believe that the greatest lie ever told in the history of history is that our God is not real, that he does not love you, care for you, or want you. And this is why when you read scripture, some of the other names prescribed to him are the Prince of Air, the Deceiver, the Angel of Light. All of these things allude to him having a power, but a temporary and fleeing one. However, this power needs to be put into perspective. When compared to God's power, the best way I've heard this described is this, and it's pretty applicable because we live a few miles from the ocean. 
When you think about the power of God and the power of the schemes of the enemy here, it's like the difference between a thimble filled with ocean water and the vast oceans themselves. One is a never-ending body of water. That's what it looks like to us. You know, go to the coast today. You can't see the end. But in the thimble, you can see the bottom. And that's, the, that's a better way to understand the, the equivalence of the, 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 these, the way these two people sort of interact. And so now while the Bible tells us we need to be alert of the schemes of our adversary and, and accuser, that's what's being taught here. It never says we need to fear him because, of, because he fears the Christ in us. And that's really what I want to drive home today. We are told to be mindful of the schemes, to stand firm against them, to be aware of them, and to know the truth. But we are never to be afraid of the enemy because of the power and the authority God has in our lives. Now that said, I want to be super clear here. We are mind to be, uh, warned to be ever mindful of the subtle ways and schemes he will use to rob us of Jesus' hope, of his love, and of his peace. All that cause us to fall away from the Lord. That's the end game there. And so you see, once, once you've been made aware of the schemes of the Satan, of the devil, once you know he has a proven tactic, once you know there are forces and principalities in the world that often want to see us pulled away from Christ, once you recognize his tactic is lies in deception, what it should do is compel us to take very seriously a teaching like the one we're looking at today. There's nothing hokey about what Paul is saying. He's giving us a direct warning and then a box of tools to be able to stand firm against these concerns we've raised this morning. We should hear a teaching like this, and our heart's desire should be somewhat of a compulsion to learn to obey what he asks us to do here. Because this is a freeing command that Paul gives us. And what he tells us to do, we won't address this today, this is what we'll talk about next week. He says the first piece of armor that we are to put on, the first thing God gives us to deal with the deceit of the devil is to cloak ourselves in the truth. It's, it's no coincidence that the first thing we're told to do is essentially to put on the truth. To put on the truth means we need to know what the truth is. And I'll make a strong argument next week that the main way we know the truth is by really being committed and understanding the teachings of the Bible. So for example, when you have a thought in your head or a negative person in your life or just something in your own soul that tries to make you less valuable and yes, less worthy than God has made you. When somebody tries to tell you that you don't matter, you have to have a corrective truth in your heart. You have to know you actually do matter because of what Jesus has done for you. When somebody tries to hurt your esteem or when they are attacking you in the depths of who you are, when they are making you feel like you are less than whom God has made you to be, you need to know whom God has made you to be. You have to have an incredibly important truth to proactively counter the lie. And there again, there's nothing hokey about that. This requires the disciplined study of the Bible so that we can discern where lies are in the world and apply Christ's truth to them so that we can truly live in the freedom he's given us on the cross. And so I'll close with this. In Scripture, Satan's scheme is seldom bold or outright. The same can be said about the way our flesh works, which is also a problem in the Bible. At times, there are just desires that our own heart has. We want to do things or be around things or we long for the things that are not of God. No human escapes this. We just sang about this too. The methods that often distract us from God are almost always, whether they're the schemes of the word of the devil or our flesh, they're almost always small and subtle at the beginning. They are used to entice us by more of a, a like a twisting of the truth rather than a full-blown distortion of it. I mean, the very origin of the first lie, the, the discussion in the garden, is a subtle truth twisting. It's not saying like the tree doesn't exist and God doesn't exist and none of this exists. It's ridiculous. It's sort of like God didn't really tell you to do that. It's just a subtle twist. It's just enough to keep that ball moving in a direction that can create a scheme. 
The scheme of the enemy is almost always aimed at getting you and I to live up to, to the world of the, the what if. That's what the desire is here. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. While God wants us to live in the world of the what is, concretely knowing his truth, the, the what if is sort of like this. When we say things like, well, what if no one loves me? Or what if no one accepts me? Or what if I am all alone in this, this world? Or what if I don't get that promotion? Or what if my kids don't grow up the way we want? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? We can fill in those blanks forever, and we can run ourselves into like craziness doing that. The what ifs. However, in Jesus, God addresses those lies, all those concerns, by declaring a singular truth. It's an unrivaled application this truth has. In Jesus, we are loved, accepted. We are approved and cherished. In Jesus, we can trust the future to him. In Jesus, we can trust today with him. In Jesus, we can trust our struggles with him. There is no what if with God. There is the what is. And this is what I mean by discerning the truth from the lie. It's going to be our goal over these next weeks to know the what is. And these tools that Paul gives us or encourages us to apply in our own lives, they give us concrete declarations of what is to snuff out the what if. And this is why, again, the first and foundational piece of armor that God commands us to put on in this teaching is the belt of truth. Please be here next week for that. That's what we'll talk about. And so when it comes to these, these deep issues of life, I want to leave you with this day. You've got to combat the lie with truth. So as you think about what we've discussed this today, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the schemes of the world that are keeping you from Jesus? What are the, what are the places where your heart needs the light of Jesus? Every heart in this room has a place where we need more Jesus. So don't feel embarrassed or ashamed about that. Know that this is part of what it means to grow in the grace of Christ. And know that our God is a good God who wants to help us grow in these areas. Wherever we doubt, wherever there is fear, there is light and truth that Jesus wants to put into our hearts so that we can overcome those things. So think about that. Begin a conversation with God this morning and throughout this week about the places where He can be invited into your life to work. And I also want to encourage you to not just apply this right now. Let this be the beginning of a dialogue you have with God over this week and certainly over these next weeks. It's really my hope and prayer that we will together journey through these tools, these arm, this armor, and think about it in very real and robust and meaningful ways, maybe even new ways, what it means to walk with the armor of God on our lives. So right now, let the truth of Jesus speak to you and set you free. And as we leave this place, ask yourself, what is God saying to you about his armor? In this case, the things that might detract your heart from Christ. And what is it you will do about it as you leave this place today? Pray with me.